turn for our scripture reading to the 19th chapter of the Gospel according to John, beginning with the 19th verse, the 19th chapter of John, the 19th verse. And Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the reading, the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. This title then read many of the Jews, for the place where Jesus was crucified was nigh to the city, and was written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin. Then said the chief priests of the Jews to Pilate, Write not the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts, to every soldier apart, and also his coat. Now the coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout. They said, therefore, among themselves, let us not rend it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled with Seth. They parted my raiment among them, and for my vesture they did cast lots. These things, therefore, the soldiers did. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciples standing by whom he, lo- by whom he loved, he said unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then said he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour that disciple took her into his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now there was was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar, and put it upon hyssop, and put it to his mouth. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head, and gave up the ghost. Let us unite in prayer. Our Father and our God, we lift our hearts in grateful praise to thee through Jesus Christ, thine only begotten and well-beloved Son, thou hast opened up access unto thy very presence. We need not fear lest we be cast out, because thou hast adopted us into the family of God through what Jesus Christ for us did on the cross. He died for our sins, he rose again for our justification, and is ascended into glory, and seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, making intercession for his own. We thank thee that now there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. We rejoice in the fact that we have received not the spirit of fear unto fear, but that we have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. And now, our Father who art in heaven, we have come this evening in this thy house of prayer to contemplate that great condescending act of redemption accomplished and finished for us upon the cruel cross of Calvary. We would gather ourselves at the foot of the cross. We would look up to him who hangs there, We would hear him speak his words of kindness with respect to his mother. We would hear him say, This day thou shalt be with me in paradise to the malefactor at his side. 
We would hear him say those awful words, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me in the middle of the darkness of the day? And then we would hear him say, I thirst, that the scriptures might be fulfilled, and we would have him say it is finished. And then, with a loud voice, cry out, Father, into thy hand I commit my spirit. As we think upon these words of the cross, and especially upon the one it is finished, we beseech of thee to thou with thy good and holy spirit, will enable us to see each one of us for ourselves, that he there hung upon the cross in our faith, that he was made a curse for us in our faith, that he bore the penalty of eternal death that we should have received and would have received, but for this fact that he was willing and thus at this time actually satisfied divine justice and reconciled us to God. We thank thee that in this day of apostasy and unbelief and skepticism and doubt in which men say there is nothing absolute in this world, there cannot be any such thing as a finished work of Christ in this world. We, the Church of Jesus Christ, by thy grace and power and by thy Spirit, may set forth without fear and trembling, in all humility, but with all boldness too, and this message of the redemption through Jesus Christ that has been accomplished, that righteousness has been brought unto men, and that we can trust in him, and that we know, not only guests, but are assured by the testimony of thy spirit with our spirit, that we are now the children of God, and we pray thee for those who have trials and tribulations of our number or of thy people everywhere, that they may be able to look up to him and see that it is finished for them. And when the day of our death comes, may we be able to say, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. But the law has been satisfied for us by Christ and he has merited eternal life for him. We are heirs of God and joint heirs with him. If of eternal life, if so be that we suffer with him, we may also be glorified together. And now we think of those that know thee not. We think of the thousands that have never heard of that only name which is under heaven, given unto men by which they must be saved. Wilt thou teach thy people the church of Jesus Christ with diligence to send forth missionaries of the cross and strengthen those who are out in the field, in foreign lands, in this land, among the peoples that know thee not, that they may turn in repentance unto thee, and ere it be too late, they may kiss the sun, lest he be angry, and cast them out into utter darkness, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And we think of those that are in churches where the gospel of this grace of salvation through the atoning death of Jesus Christ is not proclaimed in simplicity and in purity. We think of the sheep that are being led astray by false shepherds who know not the shepherds, the true shepherds themselves, and have never themselves confessed their sins unto thee and do not realize the seriousness of, this mo of these days and of this moment. Now bless us in this hour as we meditate upon the cross of Christ and grant us re to rejoice in him with joy unspeakable and full of glory. 
for Jesus, our Savior's sake. Amen. Let us now meditate for a few moments together on the 30th verse of John, the 19th chapter, and the middle sentence, It is finished. This is, in all likelihood, the sixth word of the cross, of the seven words so-called, which are not words, at least not in English. In this case, however, it is true. It's the telestai, one single Greek word in the original, which turned the world around. Now, it's upon this word, this single word, this simple, little, tiny sentence that we must fix our attention. It is said it was spoken, in all likelihood, after Jesus had just finished saying, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? This was finished. He was no longer forsaken of God. It was over. It was over for himself. The agony, the misery, the misrepresentation of the Pharisees, the misunderstanding of the disciples, the putting at naught of men everywhere, and the, uh, against the instigation of, by the instigation of Satan, it is all finished. Let us see what this means by asking, first of all, to, by asking to whom Jesus was saying this single word, it is finished. Think of him saying this, first of all, to the Father. Then think of him saying it to Satan. In the third place, think of him as saying it to his people whom he came to the redeemed. When he was about to come into this world, his mother was told that her child should be called the Son of God and that he should save his people from their sins. This had been determined upon by Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the councils of eternity. And it had been agreed upon them in this fact of eternity, this eternal, internal self Self of the self-existent, self-sufficient God, that they would create a world that it, when man would sin against him, that he would be redeemed from sin and that Jesus would be the one through whom this would be accomplished. And now he has come into the world and he has been conscious all the while of the Father's presence with him and of his support. You'll recall that when he was a boy of 12 in the temple, that he already was his father, as he said, his father's business, and that was more important to him than the business of his parents. This kingdom that he had come to establish was a kingdom not for relatives and friends, but for the lost, without God, without hope in this world. And so he was about that business, the father's business, from the beginning. Then when he was about going about from place to place in the first years, the first two years of his wanderings, and when his father and his mother and his brothers thought that he was becoming lunatic because he was getting excited, he was becoming ecstatic when he saw the crowds following him, then they wanted to take him aside and keep him safe from this influence of the public. Then he turned around and he said, Where is, Who is my father? Who is my mother? Who are my brothers and my sisters? These people. Whoever does the will of God, he is my mother and sister and brother. Not physical 
biological relatives, but the kingdom of God was to be established out of those whom he had come to redeem of every nation and kindred and tribe. And you recall that when he was about to begin his work, that there appeared a voice, that there was heard a voice from heaven, this is my beloved son. And that when later on Jesus was working in the midst of the, in the people, and he was confronted with the Pharisees, and they charged him and said, you are doing these miracles of driving out demons by means of Beelzebub, the prince of the demons. Then he said to them, ye are of your father, the devil. I am of my father. My father and I are one, and I have come in the name of the father and his behest to drive out Satan out of the hearts of men. And I, you are not understanding this. You are serving your father, the demon, the devil. And then you recall on the Mount of Transfiguration that Jesus once more heard the voice of the Father, This is my beloved Son, hear ye him. Always there was present in the midst of this work of driving out Satan, of establishing his kingdom in the hearts of men, the strengthening experience of his Father's presence by the Holy Spirit, who took him out into the desert to meet the devil and have a person-to-person -person confrontation with Satan at the beginning of the ministry to come to a clear-cut understanding that this was a fight unto the death. Jesus was constantly alert and aware of the fact that he and the Father were one in person, in being, and one in purpose to establish the kingdom of heaven in the face of and against the kingdom of Satan and his world. And now all this apparently is gone. Even in the garden, Jesus had been conscious of the fact that when his disciples had forsaken him and those three favorite ones of his that he's taken with him to assist him, to be, a, to be with him in his difficulty and trial, when he was sweating, as it were, great drops of blood because of his agony that he had before him, the thought of suffering so intensely as no man has ever suffered or can suffer because no one ever can suffer the, the pangs of hell as an absolute holy one. Then he was still aware of the fact that the Father was with him. Father, he says, if it be possible that this cup go past me and be that I drink it not, let thy will be done. And then the Father sent an angel to comfort him. The Father was with him, was sustaining him. In this amazement of his, when he was setting his face definitely to go to Jerusalem, he was overwhelmed by the prospect of it. But it was nothing like what had happened now. In the first three hours on the cross, from nine o'clock in the morning till about twelve, Jesus saw his mother there and said to John, See thy mother, and to his mother, see thy son. And then hangs that malefactor with him on the cross, and one on either side, they too reviling him as the crowd reviled him, and as the Pharisees reviled him himself, he cannot save others. He saved, let him come down now from the cross, if he be the Son of God. 
and we shall believe in him. And then both of them reviled, we read. And then one, by the Holy Spirit, was convicted of sin. Jesus, when he was reviled, reviled not again. No man has ever done that. He was impressed by this fact that the Holy Spirit enlightened him to the depths of Jesus' divinity. And then he cried out, Remember me when thou comest into thy paradise, into thy kingdom. And Jesus said, This day thou shalt be with me in paradise. And then at twelve o'clock noon, darkness came upon the face of the earth, such darkness as then spiritually enveloped his soul. Perhaps three o'clock in the afternoon, near the end of this three-hour period of darkness, the over this forsakenness of the Father of God overwhelmed him. All the billows of the wrath of God overwhelmed him. And he was now utterly undone. And so he cries out in his agony, Not my father, my father, why hast thou forsaken me? He's not even conscious of the fact that the father is still thinking of him. But he says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? For how could you forsake me? Have I not kept the law? Have I not in every altar tittle kept the law? Hasn't Satan watched me as a hawk for three years and he couldn't ever detect me in one single sin? Who of you, Jesus said one day, convinces me of sin? I've led a sinless life. I have obeyed thy precepts. I have fulfilled the law. I have loved God above all else and I've loved my neighbor as myself. Am I not right to come into thy presence? Well, that was the temptation. You remember on the mount, when Moses and Elijah, the one who gave the law and the one who defended the law, were as it were anxious that Jesus should not sin, though he could go to heaven, he had a right to go to heaven. But please don't go to heaven, or you'll dash us down to hell. That's what they said to Jesus. Go the way of sorrows to Via Dolorosa, to the cross, and Jesus set his face steadfastly to Jerusalem. But now it's all come to, into actual reality. He had wanted to do this. He was determined to do this. He agreed with the Father that it must be done and that he would do it. But now that it's the actual reality is upon him, now he cries out in depth of misery, such as no one condemned to death, no man condemned to death, by crucifixion even, could ever experience. The crucifixion was a horrible death. The Romans wouldn't, wouldn't use it upon their own people. There was a cross, as you know, the so-called Roman cross, an upright with a cross piece, and it was laid on the ground, and their arms were stretched out and driven through by spikes, and then their feet, and then it was raised up, and there they hung, maybe two days sometimes, in the hot, burning sun, with fever developing, a horrible death it was. And Jesus was dying that death, but his physical death was only a, an intimation of his spiritual forsakenness of God, which no human being, except those that will experience it forever hereafter in hell, 
as in this on this earth experience. And so he is overwhelmed. How could you do this to me? Father, my God, my God. But now all this is finished. And his cry it is finished. When the light returns, then everything is different. Then it's done. Then it's all over. God the Father is back with him and speaks to him and the Spirit supports him. And now then, he is willing to take a drink to relieve his, uh, his pain. At the beginning, he refused the vinegar with myrrh. He didn't want a sedative. He wanted to see this thing through in full self-consciousness. But now that it's over, for his relief, from utter fearful, fearful death or thirst, he said, I thirst. And after that, he said, it is finished. Now this, he said to the Father, therefore, my Father, I have glorified thee on earth, he said in his heavenly prayer. I have finished the work which thou hast given me to do. Now glorify thy Son with the glory which he had with thee before the world was. But then we turn to Satan, for these words were spoken secondly also to Satan. He was the one from whom this kingdom had to be wrested in the desert at the beginning of his career. You remember Satan asked him, look, if you are the Son of God, perform a few miracles, demonstrate it. Make, this, make these stones into bread. But most of all, in the third one, when he said, Will you just bow the knee to me, one gentle, gentle genuflection, and I will give you the kingdoms. What's the use of all this suffering? Suffering, sure, suffering sanctified. Aeschylus, the Greek tradition, said that much. We all know that. That's all right. Suffering, gentle suffering, that all men suffer, that helps them clears their minds and hearts and makes them better people. But that you should, as the Son of God, die instead of and for the place, in the place of, and be made a curse for men. That, Satan says, don't believe it. I don't believe it. Why are you so foolish to believe it? That's the hard way. Take the easy way. Take my advice. And then he, Jesus said to him, Get thee behind me, Satan. It is written. I know that you appeal to the Bible, to the Old Testament, and say, It is written. But I've told you what the true sense of Scripture is. You misinterpret Scripture. It isn't a question of words of Scripture, but of the sense of Scripture. And the sense of Scripture is that Moses and the prophets have spoken of me as the one who should fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah, that he was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities, that in our place, in our room instead, as the Scotsman would say, he will die and bear the pangs of eternal death in our place. Now get thee behind me, Satan, let me alone. But Satan wasn't about to leave Jesus alone. He never stopped annoying him and pestering him. He instigated especially the Pharisees into misunderstanding, seeking to have Jesus misunderstand the kingdom again. They pretended to be monists. They said, you are not God. There's only one God, the Lord thy God, 
said, I am God alone and God. The Greeks said it, Moses said it, we all say it, except you say that you are also God. That's two gods, that's one too many. You're a liar. You're not God. You're a, you're a fake. That's what they said, in effect, to Jesus. But Jesus said, the question is, who blasphemes? You are blaspheming me. I am not blaspheming God. The Father and I are one. Satan was in all of this. But now he was already, of course, active in the beginning of time when he got Adam and Eve to fall for the temptation to set God aside and to become the source of law for themselves, to become autonomous, to say what is right and wrong. As Socrates later said, I want to know and be able to say what is right or wrong, regardless of what gods or men say about it. Those are extraneous definitions. I want a definition of the holy that springs from my own moral consciousness. Only that kind will I recognize and will I obey. Well, don't you see, Satan was working in Socrates and in the Greeks. And pretty soon Paul had to confront him there. But he was also working in the false church, in the Pharisees. Now that soon is what soon these disciples, these poor, uninstructed, misunderstanding disciples, at this time, they must become prepared for this, to face this sort of situation as Jesus self-consciously faced, and he knew, he understood, and he carried through his plan. And now he said to Satan, it is finished. You are finished. You're done for. Oh yes, you will get more excited than ever before. You will be desperate in your hatred. You inspired hate, inspired hatred into Cain's heart that he slew his brother Abel. Did you think you beat him? No, it was Abel who was victorious over Cain. You thought you were victorious when you wiped out the difference between the children of Seth and the children of Cain so that God said it repented him that he had made man upon the earth because the his thoughts were his imagination was only evil continually. And God was about to destroy and did destroy, except Noah and his eight souls in the ark. Did you think, Satan, that you had been that you were successful then? Did you think you were successful when Abraham, the father of the faithful, in his moments of weakness, took took means it took things in his own hands? in order to accomplish the promises of God? Did you think you were successful? You were not. Because I am the seed of Abraham, as I am the seed of the woman who should destroy the head of the serpent. Your head has been destroyed. My heel has been hurt, but your head has been destroyed. And I am the promised seed. In me shall all the nations of the world be blessed. In my kingdom, shall be established, and the, and the powers of hell shall not prevail against you. You are finished, Satan. You are finished. To be sure, you will be desperate, and in the end of time, you will, as it were, spew forth a river of water, that it may wash away the child, the Jesus, the Son of God, which the church, the womb, the mother will bring forth. But I will then ask the desert to swallow up the river. You are defeated, Satan. You are done for. All your desperate efforts are in vain. And what is worse for you, you will tremble. 
You know your time is short. You know you are defeated. First, uh, at first, you might have possibly thought you could have been successful. Now you know you can't be successful. You have heard me say that I was forsaken of God. I was forsaken in order that my people might not be forsaken and that you and those minions of yours who follow your instructions and advice, that they might be cast out into outer darkness with you. And then let us think in the third place what Jesus meant by these words. It is finished when he said them as it were to his own, to his people. They too, so to speak, have overheard that heavenly priest, high priestly prayer when Jesus told the Father, I have accomplished, I have finished this work which you have told me to do in this world. Father, glorify me now with the glory which I had before the world was. And now then, what is this that is finished? Tell it, to, tell it to the apostles. They have walked with me. They have talked with me. They've heard my conversation with the Pharisees. And they thought I was too sharp on them, too hard on them, when I told them they were the children of the devil. They couldn't understand that I was using such absolutistic language as that. Are there such things in this world? And then they couldn't understand what it meant that I was the Son of God. Oh yes, they said it, they understood it, they loved me, but they did not fully understand the implications of it. But now they do. It is finished. The instruction, the course, the three-year theological training period is over. They are graduates. And they understand, not as though they exhaustively understand what man exhaustively understands God, but they understand their task. That is what is assigned to them. And now, not only do they understand, but they are now bold as they were fear, fearful before. Peter denied Jesus, and they all left and ran when Jesus was apprehended that night. But now listen to Peter after this, when he stands before the council. If you want to know why, how this man before you is healed, be it known unto you that through the name of Jesus whom you have crucified, this man stands before you whole. That was Peter after this, after this word of Jesus that is finished, and after the resurrection which followed upon it of naturally and of necessity. What a change in understanding and apprehension. They are now qualified both intellectually and understanding, and spiritually and moral power, they now are able to stand before kings and potentates who have the power and the desire to destroy them, and they are not afraid. Oh, think of Paul, the apostle formerly, Saul of Tarsus, who persecuted Jesus and all those who followed him, suddenly enveloped by the light on the way to Damascus and spoken to by Jesus, who said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Who art thou, Lord? After this, Paul can't do enough, and he's not afraid of any man on earth. Not that he has physical daring, but that he has spiritual power, which can not be resisted by anyone on earth. And now, don't you see, after this, Paul goes forth to the Greeks, and he knows them. He understands their philosophy. 
He knows that they think that they have knowledge and that the Jews know nothing and that there is no knowledge of any absolute nature in this world. You remember Pilate, when Jesus stood before him and he asked him, Are thou then a king? And Jesus said he came to bring a kingdom, not of this earth, but a kingdom of truth. Then Pilate, in true Greek skepticism, which the Romans had taken over, what is true? Who knows anything about it? Nobody knows. The meanwhile, he was assuming that he, Jesus was not the truth. He knew that much. He made a universal negative on the basis of not knowing anything according to his own assertion. Well, Paul faced the Greeks knowing that they did not know and that nobody knows anything about anything unless he first believes and trusts the words of Jesus, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so Jesus now, in these words it is finished, says to these twelve apostles, it is finished, your training period is over. This is the graduation. Out you go into the world. Tell the world that they must repent and believe and then they will be saved. Now think for a moment with me of what Jesus in these words said to, his, to the people of God in general. Because Jesus in that priestly prayer of his said that he prayed not only for them, the twelve disciples, but also for all them who through these twelve disciples should believe in them. They too must understand. They too must become witnesses and with boldness to make known the gospel unto men. Now think of the Old Testament saints. There was Enoch who walked with God. Well, Enoch, now you will always walk with God. There was Noah who witnessed to all men around him, he who had found favor in the sight of God, who built the ark, he alone witnessed to the coming judgment, and they ridiculed him. Floods, high floods like that, there's no empirical evidence for it. After all, we have to go by the facts, and there's no evidence for floods that high. Huh, can't be, Noah, but Noah was the only one with his family who remained alive. They all were destroyed. Because they said, what does sin have to do with rain? There's an I-it dimension, rain, that has nothing to do with the I-thou dimension, the moral field. We can do what we please morally that will not affect the situation as far as physics is concerned. Well now, Satan, you were not victorious, but Noah was, because I was speaking through Noah to his generation. Noah witnessed of me, and I witnessed through Noah of myself. And then there was Abraham, who looked for my day, and who looked for the city that has foundations. Well, I am the seed of Abraham, and Abraham now will enter forever and remain in that city that hath foundations, whose builder and maker of God is God. And then there is Moses and there is Elijah who came on the mount. Why did they come? Well, they were so anxious to make sure that Jesus would go the way of the cross, that they had to read that represented the saints of the Old Testament, 
to plead with him not to allow Satan's temptation at last still to depend on his own good works by means of his own obedience and not thinking of his people. He must think of his people. And he did. He did not forsake them in this last critical hour. It is finished for this people. And now then for us, all of us, young and old, surely, this is simple, is it not? If we are young, we may think we need pay no attention to this, that science and philosophy have some light to shed upon this business of this life and the life hereafter. My friends, it doesn't. There is no one who knows enough that this simple story is not true. And down deep in our hearts, all of us know it is true. And soon all of us, whether we're young now and healthy and prosperous, soon all of us must die. And then we must have a comfort. We must now have this comfort. We must now have a challenge to labor. Something to do, not something to do, but this thing to do. Or our labor will be for fire, for destruction. And so it is before this choice that the young people are set by these words of Jesus. And when you are older and you have trials and you have tribulations, then you know that you may cast your cares and burdens upon the Lord and it will not be in vain. He has finished it for you because, don't you see, there is nothing left that Satan can do. He may tempt you, but he will never succeed in taking you away from the power of Jesus. And so you can say with the Apostle Paul, I know whom I have believed and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. And then as we undertake our task again together in Jesus' name, let us do so with joy that passeth understanding which the world knows not. Oh, grant that God may give all of us personally, individually, to be able to say that Jesus finished the matter of sin for us. May we say, he died for me in my place. He bore my sins in my place. The curse of God was upon me. The wrath of God which I deserve. But he has borne it for, for me because I have repented by the power of his spirit. And then may joy enter the hearts of all of us. And may we go forth the rest of our lives, young or old, in his service till Jesus comes and receives us into his presence and says, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful in a few things. Enter into the joy of thy Lord. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank thee that we have this, this narrative of Jesus' crucifixion. O grant that all of us may ask ourselves, each one of us as we go home, whether we are among those for whom Jesus died, whether we are among those who has, for whom he has borne the curse of God upon us for our sins. And then may we commit ourselves wholeheartedly to him and to his service. And may the peace that passes understanding which the world knows not enter into our hearts. And the joy of the Lord be our portion all the days of our life. 
for thine own name's sake. Amen. From the Gospel of Luke, the 22nd chapter. Now the feast of Hanbevan which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and scribes thought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. Then entered Satan into Judas, surnamed Iscariot, being of the number of the twelve. And he went his way and communed with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him unto them. And they were glad and covenanted to give him money. And he promised and sought opportunity to betray him unto them in the absence of the multitude. Then came the day of unleavened bread, and the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare us the Passover, that we may eat. And they said unto him, Where wilt thou that we prepare? And he said unto them, Behold, when ye are entered into the city, there shall a man meet you, bearing a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house where he entereth in. And ye shall say unto the good man of the house, The master saith unto thee, Where is the guest chamber, where I shall eat Passover with my disciples? And he shall show you a large upper room furnished, there make ready. They went and found as he had said unto them, and they made ready the Passover. And when the hour was come, he sat down, and the twelve apostles with him. And he said unto them, With desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say unto you, I will not any more eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup and gave thanks, and said, Take this, and divide it among yourselves. For I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. And he took bread, and gave thanks, and brake it, and gave unto them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. Likewise also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new testament in my blood, which is shed for you. But behold, the hand of him that betrayed me is with me on the table. And truly the Son of Man goeth as it was determined. Woe unto that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to inquire among themselves which of them was that should do this thing. And there was also a strife among the which of them should be accounted the greatest. And he said unto them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and they that exercise authority upon them are called benefactors. But ye shall not be so. <coughs> he that is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he that is chief, as he that doth serve. For whether is greater, he that sitteth at meat, or he that serveth, is not he that sitteth at meat, but I am among you as he that serveth. Ye are they which have continued with me in my temptation. And I appoint unto you a kingdom, as my Father hath appointed unto me, that ye may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, 
that he may sift you as the wheat. But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not, and when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. And he said unto him, Lord, I am ready to go with thee both into prison and to death. He said, I tell thee, Peter, the cock shall not crow this day, before that thou shalt thrice deny that thou knowest me. And he said unto them, When I sent you in without purse and script and shoes, lack ye anything? And they said, Nothing. Then said he unto them, But now, he that hath the purse, let him take it. And likewise with the script. And he that hath no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say unto you that this is written, that is written, must yet be accomplished in me. And he was reckoned among the transgressors, for the things concerning me have an end. And they said, Lord, behold, there are here two swords. And he said unto them, It is enough. And he came out and went, and as he was wont, to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples also followed him. And when he was at the place, he said unto them, Pray that ye enter not into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast, and kneeled down and prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. Being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was as it were great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose up from prayer and was come to his disciples, he found them sleeping for sorrow, and said unto them, Why sleep ye? Rise and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. And while he yet spake, behold the multitude, and he that was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before him and drew near unto Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said unto him, Judas, betray his thou the son of man, and When they which were about him saw what was followed, they said unto him, Lord, shall we smite him in the Lord? One of them spoke the servants, and I agreed to cut off his right ear. Jesus answered him, and said, Let me spar, and he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said unto the chief priests and captains of the temple and the elders which were come to him, Be come out as against the thief with swords and staves. When I was daily with you in the temple, ye stretched forth no hands against me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Then took they him and led him and brought him into the high priest's house. And Peter followed afar off. And when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the hall, and were set down together, Peter sat down among them. But a certain maid beheld him as he sat by the fire, and earnestly looked upon him, and said, This man was also with him. And he denied him, saying, Woman, I know him not. And after a little while another saw him, and said, Thou art also of them. And Peter said, Man, I am not. And about the space of one hour after, other confidently affirmed of the truth, this fellow also was with him, for he is a Galilean. And Peter said, Man, I know not what thou sayest. And immediately, while he yet spake, the cock crew. And the Lord turned and looked upon Peter. 
And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said unto him, Before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. And the men that held Jesus mocked him and smote him. And when they had blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, Prophesy, who is it that smote thee? And many other things, blasphemy, spake they against him. And as soon as it was day, the elders of the people and the chief priests and the scribes came together and led him into their council, saying, Art thou the Christ? Tell us. And said unto them, If I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I also ask you, you will not answer me, nor let me go. Hereafter shall the Son of Man sit on the right hand of the power of God, then said they all, Art thou then the Son of God? And he said unto them, Ye say that I am. And they said, What need we any further witness? For we ourselves have heard of his own mouth. When you read a chapter of this sort, it seems almost blasphemous to say anything at all. Certainly there were those around about Jesus that spoke blasphemy. How could they do anything else if they were not speaking with Christ for him? And poor Peter and the apostles. But Peter had the hardest time because he had just a big mouth. Now that's unavoidable. I often have a big mouth. And then I have a hard time after that, always, without exception. But Peter was also outspoken to the first one to recognize and to confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And then he turned right around when Jesus began to speak of his suffering, this shall not be unto me. And after that, Jesus said unto me, get thee behind me, Satan, for the things you're now speaking, Peter, are of Satan. Now Satan had been interested in Jesus from the beginning, you remember that the Spirit took Jesus up onto the mountain to meet Satan. In other words, the Holy Spirit wanted Jesus to meet Satan person-to-person confrontation-wise. And they did have that confrontation. And the issue was the kingdom of God, how shall it be established? Satan wanted it to be established, established the way Escalines, the Sophist, the, the Greek Horace wanted it to be established on the principle that all suffering sanctifies. Masse was the Greek tragedian's notion of suffering and of all non-Christian thinking, and Satan loves to have it so. It was that way when Luther came to set us free by the grace of God, for that notion had also virtually taken hold of the Roman Catholic Church. The whole of Jesus' life was a struggle with Satan. Satan came to him directly first, and then he, after a while, was operating indirectly through the Pharisees and through the leaders of the people. They claimed to be monotheists. The Lord thy God is one Lord. We are orthodox. We're followers of Moses. That seemed orthodoxy. It was paganism because their one God was the same as the God of the Greek philosophers, an abstract eternal principle, so that there could be no manifestation in history of God. And Jesus claimed to be God. He said that he and the Father were one. But they said that when he claimed to be one with the Father, he blasphemed. 
they charged him with blasphemy on the ground of a pagan principle of unity, on the basis of which there could be no such thing in history as a creation of sin and a fall of man and a redemption from sin. Now, Satan therefore loved the Pharisees, and he was they were his tools in condemning Jesus. But what a fool Satan was. At the beginning, he seemed to think, if I can only get Jesus, this one who has come to save his people from their sins, if I can only get him to try to do that without suffering. But now, toward the end, he wants to crucify Jesus. And he does everything to have Jesus put out of the way by crucifixion. Satan is an internally self-contradictory spirit. And it is that nature that envelops all those who in principle work with him and follow him. And it is this opposition between Satan as he works through men outside the church and often as an angel of light inside the church that we have to deal with in our day. Therefore, our preaching ought to be dramatic, not flailing your hands necessary, as some of us are wont to do. That isn't preaching dramatically, that's preaching fantastically. <laughs> but preaching dramatically is to give the drama between God and the devil for the soul of man and point out the stages at which this drama has come. So you don't talk about Abram, what a nice man he was, and that you ought to be a nice man, let us pray. That's not preaching, but preaching about Abraham is to point out that at that stage of the drama between God and the devil, it was Abraham who took the leadership and under God worked against the devil and for Jesus Christ. Shall we pray? We thank thee, our Heavenly Father, that we have a name and place in the kingdom of heaven and as thou our Savior didst come to establish it in the face of Satan and his hosts, in opposition to the powers of hell, and as thou didst say that the powers of hell shall not be able to destroy that kingdom, and as thou didst accomplish this work for us in our place on the cross, and as thou didst rise again from the dead for our justification, may we, each of us, become dramatic preachers of the gospel of that grace, and be conscious of the allurements of Satan, for he would, if it were possible, bring the very elect from the gates of heaven down to destruction. Now strengthen us this day that we may make progress in our task to be better able in the days of heaven to become proclaimers of that gospel of thy grace, our crucified Savior and our risen Lord, for thine own name's sake. Amen.